The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Over these uh, three addresses, the first two, I have not been uh, attempting in any way to instruct you on how to teach. You are the educators. It's not my area of expertise. My efforts have been directed towards trying to inspire, encourage, exhort, and hopefully strengthen you to some degree in the recognition of the centrality, significance, and importance of your role and your work as teachers, as one of the, if not the primary means by which God through uh, training and teaching and education, as we've seen even in the commission of Christ, is bringing about his kingdom in our world. That your role as teachers is one of the central components in that process. And I hope that uh, I've been able to, to some degree over these first two sessions, inspire you and encourage you with that thought. In the first session, we talked about the importance of the renewal of the mind to transform a culture. And that the teaching process is one in which a child's mind is being nurtured and uh, grown and directed and encouraged in a given direction, renewed in terms of the curriculum of Christ. And I tried to emphasize how important it is that for Christ's kingdom being established in our world, that the renewal of the mind is taking place through this process of teaching. And I emphasized again and again how important it is that we consider the Word of God as central in that process. In the second session, I talked about the comprehensive nature of that faith, that we are not compartmentalizing the Christian life, we're not privatizing the Christian life, but in fact, the Christian faith encompasses every aspect of our lives, and that that Education is equipping young people for life, for that life. It's comprehensive. We talked about origin, meaning, morality, destiny as the worldview components that we are to see as the bedrock and the backdrop to our educational efforts, that everything fits within that Christian paradigm. And so we talked about the redemption of every aspect of culture, literature, art, music, mathematics, whatever it may be, things that perhaps we haven't thought need redemption, that Christ's redemption encompasses all and every aspect of life. And that as teachers in education equipping young people for life, it's a comprehensive faith from marriage to family to children to the church to law to politics and so forth. It applies everywhere. In this final session then, what I would like to do is talk about the end objective, the, if you like, what uh, theologians would call the eschaton, the ultimate purpose to which all things are tending, the end result, the goal, the ultimate goal, the ultimate teleology of all our efforts as Christians and as educators. And that goal, that end, is the city of God, the kingdom of God and the ultimate realization and fulfillment of that kingdom. I'd like to read to you from the first epistle of John, just a couple of verses, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, 
and verses 28 through to chapter 3, verse 3. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. When Augustine was writing about the city of God, in his commentary on Psalms, on Psalm 84, verse 10, he wrote, We shall be in a city of which, my brethren, when I speak, I find it difficult to leave off. The city of God the end goal, the tendency toward the, te- the direction towards which all education tends. It's true that we often have very hazy and often strange ideas about the eternal state, and so I want to try and ground it in our thinking a little bit today. The disciples of Jesus were taken up on a number of different occasions with this question arguing in particular about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God and who were going to have the seats of honor next to Christ in the city of God and so forth. And in Matthew 18, we read that they ask Jesus this question outright. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds in a way that I think should appeal to teachers. He asks a child to come and stand among them. Tell you what, Matthew 18, uh, how it reads. Then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. Whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Isn't that part of what we are doing as what you were doing as teachers? The kingdom of God is a place that is entered into like a child. And the first thing about the city of God, the kingdom of God, is that it's only the contrite, the childlike, not the childish, the childlike that enter it. Being childlike does not mean abandoning everything that adulthood entails. It doesn't mean becoming childish, but it means taking on an attitude of humility When we are uh, surrounded as Christians in our culture, it is sometimes easy to misunderstand the nature of Christ's kingdom. God's value structure is not a vain form of human assessment that the disciples seem to think that it was. And you may not think that your role as a Christian teacher of elementary students or whatever age you're teaching is that significant. But access to and its significance in the kingdom of God is not measured in the way in which the world, the secular city, the earthly city, measures it. It's not measured by income level or position or power. 
prominence, outward conformity to other standards. These are the values of the Civitas Tirana, the city of earth, the earthly city. The kingdom and presence of God, according to Christ, is accessed by this childlike surrender to God. And that surrender includes our intellectual lives, not just our ethical lives. We often think about righteousness in God's kingdom as being the surrender of our ethical lives to God, and that is true, but it's also our intellectual lives, the recognition of the lordship of Christ over every area of life and thought. How easy it is to say, well, I'll allow Christ to be Lord there, but not here. The kingdom and presence of God, then, is so different. James reminds us, the Apostle James reminds us of this value structure in James 2, verses 1 through 9. He says, My brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes so that you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? It's with the necessary sense of humility, then, that we talk about the city of God, the eternal city. Perhaps we can learn most about the city of God, the end towards which all things are tending in history, through your efforts and mine, as through a consideration of what is going on here and now, expressed in the earth. Rather than abstracting everything about the city of God, the eternal city, uh, to the, the future and another realm, even a choir singing this morning. You know, uh, choral singing is something that uh, developed, interestingly, in the, in the context of the Christian worldview, unity and diversity, the harmonious singing of voices together. And that picture of a choir and the end there leaning on one another's shoulders is an image and a picture of the kingdom and the city of God. Christ established that presence and that kingdom on earth, and he taught us to pray as we saw yesterday, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Our eternity in the presence of God is simply the unfolding, the unveiling, the completion and ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for history here And now, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, is just the final victory of God in history. Some of you may be anticipating the defeat of God in history. I'm not. I'm anticipating the victory and conquest of Gondor in the here and now. It's difficult, as we've seen, to liberate ourselves from some of our defeatist mentalities when we look at the context in which we currently live. But education is a process of transforming the future. You see, time for God does not unfold past, present to future, but rather from his plan, future, present to past. It unfolds. You see, for the humanist, chaos and time itself, we are totally buried and and submerged and immersed in historical time. And everything is unfolding from the void, from chaos past, present, to future. 
without any meaning or ultimate teleology or purpose at all. But for God, known unto the Lord are all His works from the foundation of the earth. It unfolds future, present, to past. The Hebrew term for the human person does not succumb to the temptation then of abstracting the kingdom from the world right now, the kingdom of God in the here and now. In fact, when Jesus referred to paradise, to the thief on the other cross, he referred to a walled garden. It's the influence of some of the uh, of Greek Platonic thought that tends to, where we tend to think about souls in heaven and uh, disembodied spirits in heaven rather than the concrete manifestation of God's kingdom, which is what the resurrection is all about. But our eternity in the presence of God has already begun right now. The city of God is here with us now. The kingdom of God is here with us now. And all history has this consummation in view. All education has this consummation in view. And I would encourage you when you think about your profession as teachers, when you think about your vocation as teachers, to think of it in terms of the city of God, of the kingdom of God, and the ultimate victory of God's purposes in history. History began in a paradise. I believe that. I believe that's historical. I believe it began with our first parents, historical people who fell in the garden of God and broke covenant with God. And there was an announcement in Genesis 3 verse 15 of a covenant of grace that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And the whole of the Old Testament, the stream of prophecy throughout the Old Testament, leads us to the birth of the seed of the woman in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus. You know, when Eve gave birth to Cain, many scholars believe his name literally means, here he is. She says, I've gotten a man-child by the help of the Lord. She thought she'd given birth to the Savior. It was, after all, the first pregnancy and the first birth. Would have been an unusual experience. No mother or grandmother to speak to about it. But Christ's victory over all sin and death is foretold to us there in Genesis 3, verse 15. This cosmic plan this unfolding of a paradise that began, which was lost, to a paradise which is going to be regained in Christ, the second Adam, according to Romans 5. And it will be consummated with our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, according to Paul in Romans 8. What kind of an image can we latch on to to help us grasp this? Well, I think there are uh, two very good examples that we can look at in literature. One of them is Augustine's biblical conception of these two cities in history that began there after the, uh, the birth of those first human children, Cain and Abel. Eve was a little bit early in her expectation of the Messiah. It was, in fact, the first murderer, Cain, the first liar, or rather the first murderer. He wasn't quite the first liar. What was it that God says to him? Where is your brother? Abel, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. This disinterest in his brother. But Augustine begins to paint a picture for us in his City of God. By the way, as a quick test here for you teachers, who has read Augustine's City of God? Raise your hand. (laughs) I will continue with the illustration. And can I encourage you as educators to read, even if it's the abridged edition, of Augustine's City of God, which shaped the Christian West. 
shaped the medieval world. It is a marvelous and fantastic book, and it will help you capture a vision of what God is wanting to do through us in history. (laughs) The culmination and the victory of the glorious city of God is painted for us in this marvelous epic, The City of God. And in anticipation of his intention to write this book, this is what Augustine wrote to one of his friends in a letter. He said this, There are then two loves, of which one is holy, the other unclean. One turned toward the neighbor, the other centered on self. One looking to the common good, keeping in view the society of saints in heaven. The other bringing the common good under its own power, arrogantly looking to domination. The two loves started among the angels, one love in the good angels, the other in the bad, and they have marked the limits of the two cities established among men under the sublime and wonderful providence of God. With these two cities intermingled to a certain extent in time, the world moves on until they will be separated at the last judgment. The one will be joined to the holy angels and being united to its king will attain eternal life. The other will be joined to the wicked angels and being united with its king will be sent to eternal fire. Concerning these two cities, I shall perhaps write at more length in another book if the Lord is willing. Well, if you've seen the city of God, you'll know that the Lord was willing and he did write a substantial volume, which probably accounts for why some of us haven't picked it up, called the city of God, one of the greatest works of Christian apologetics that there is still today. And as he reflects in the city of God on the fall of Rome in AD 410, its causes, and he contrasts the city of Rome, this temporal transitory blooming of man's empire, of human empire, the city of the world, the secular city, with the city of God and its people. And the final realization of that city of the bliss it shall experience with God and his saints. This is what he writes, Who can measure the happiness of heaven? Where no evil at all can touch us, no good will be out of reach. Where life is one long Lord extolling God, who will be all in all. Where there will be no weariness to call for rest, no need to call for toil, no place for any energy but praise. Of this I am assured whenever I read or hear the sacred song, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, O Lord. They praise thee forever and ever. There's another classic of literature, uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Who's read Milton's Paradise Lost? Raise your hand. A few more. Excellent. Um, Well, my grandfather actually came to faith in Christ in his 80s through listening to a reading of John Milton's Paradise Lost. And it was prompted, that work, by the devastating demise and loss of Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century England after this Puritan dream of a Christian commonwealth of righteousness and justice began to fade with the return of Charles II, that profligate and degenerate man. I know the uh, secular history books like him, but that was his true character. Cromwell and his new model army, which is so maligned in contemporary uh, historical analysis, defeated in many respects the tyranny of the absolute power of the monarchy gave us our parliamentary democracy that we enjoy in Canada today, gave us the beginnings of our parliamentary democracy in the United Kingdom. But with the uh, opposition of many of those who were in positions to gain through the power of the monarchy, this hope of justice and peace and prosperity was being undermined by the ruling elite, and many of the common people did not want these newfound freedoms 
Because responsibility, of course, is not something that people always want. How many of Canadians actually turn up to vote at an election, for example? I mean, in the UK, it was well below 50% at the last general election. Sometimes people don't even want the responsibilities of the freedoms that they are given. Well, John Milton wrote Paradise Lost. He was a member of Oliver Cromwell's cabinet, and when he saw the demise of this dream of a righteous and just Christian commonwealth, he paralleled it in his great poem with the fall of man and the story of the fall from the garden of God. And, of course, many of the Puritans at that time joined many of the others who had already fled to the Americas in the hope of building a truly independent republic, a truly just uh, republic under God. That was the dream. That was the hope. That was the objective. Well, both of these great works point us, I think, towards a concrete rather than an abstract or nebulous idea of the kingdom of God. You see, Israel, the nation of Israel, is another picture that's given to us, of course, in the Scriptures. There were these temporal, conditional promises, weren't there, given to the nation of Israel about a geographical location, Canaan, a promised land, and this people, this nation of Israel, the Hebrew nation, were to be a light to the Gentiles. That was their purpose. And we have there in the history of the nation of Israel a concrete example of a group of people who found themselves in constant conflict with the pagan, idolatrous nations all around them, who were fighting against and warring against the purposes of God. You see, the seed of the woman was being protected inside the Hebrew nation. If the Hebrews had been routed completely, what would have happened to the Davidic line of Christ and all the prophecies of Scripture? Well, Augustine, mirroring this antithesis between these two kingdoms of light and the kingdom of darkness, tells us about righteousness and unrighteousness and the progress of the city. And it's not a progress that's supposed to be attached to any one nation, any one empire, any one particular point in history, any one particular entity, because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than that. It's transnational. It's transcultural. It moves throughout all of time. And so we find Augustine not being overly disturbed by the fall of Rome, despite the fact that Rome, in many respects, had become increasingly Christian. The Roman Empire had been deeply impacted, as you know, by the Christian faith. Many of the emperors had turned to Christ. Paganism, um, child sacrifice, and other evils had been outlawed. There was much hope, and it led many Christians at that time to put a false hope in human power and human government. And there was this dream that maybe the Roman Empire was going to be the great Christian empire that would Christianize the entire world. Well, then Rome falls, and so Augustine writes the city of God. It shows us that God's city, God's kingdom, transcends all human temporal empires. It's a city that can never be defeated. What was it that Jesus said to Pontius Pilate? If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have fought to prevent my arrest. But my kingdom is not from this world. He didn't say, my kingdom is not in this world. Now, many of us as Christians read that and we say, that's right, our kingdom's in heaven. No, that's not what Jesus said. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were from this world, my followers would have fought. But it doesn't come about by human power. Its origin is not human power. It's Christ's power working in us and through us, and that should give us tremendous confidence as we look at the situation in Canada today, as we face the challenges of our own Christian lives. 
the lives of Christian schools, the life of the church in Canada today, we may think, well, there's defeat all around us. Well, we would be defeated if it was dependent upon us, but it isn't. For Augustine, peace and justice, the two great aims of human society, can only be realized in the commonwealth of Christ. And what is the best manifestation of the commonwealth of Christ in the world today? It's his church, his people, believers. In that mystery we call communion, the body of Christ manifesting the kingdom of God and all the sources of government that God has established through his people, the family, the school, the church, and our impact in the world as salt and light transforming our environment. Yes, there have been times of progress, times of decline, and so forth, but God's kingdom will be established. It can only be realized through the person of Christ. Haven't the sociologists and the psychologists and the planners and the political analysts and so forth tried everything Here we are, the great Canadian experiment. If this fails, apparently all is lost. Only Christ's kingdom and his justice and his rule and his realm manifest best through his church with all its faults is moving and impacting history. And that presence of God in history through his kingdom, through his people, is progressive transformation in which God will have the victory. And the Psalms are full of this. If you just read the book of Psalms, which is where Augustine got his idea for his book, The City of God, you read things like this, rise up, O Lord, Psalm 17, confront him, bring him down with your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and you leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. And there's two groups of people in the world. And Augustine unpacks this. There are those whose goal and portion and desires have nothing beyond this life as a referent. Their God is their bellies. It's about personal satisfaction, meeting my needs. It's all about me. It's self, 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 self. And if you're a parent or a teacher, you know that life cannot be about self, self, self. They are satisfied with the temporal, and God fills their bellies with the temporal, and the life after is simply more of the same, a self-absorbed universe of separation from God. But David says of the covenant people, we will see his face in righteousness. When we awake in the eternal presence, we shall be satisfied in his presence, literally meaning satisfied with his form or his likeness. In other words, we will be transformed We will become satisfied because we will be transformed to his likeness, which is what the Apostle John was saying. When we see him, we shall be like him. We will see him as he is. Blessed are the poor in heart, Jesus says. They will see God. Everyone who has this hope in him, says John, purifies himself just as he is pure. See, in the here and now, you and I are supposed to be recipients of this beautific vision This vision of God in Christ with unveiled face, Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord. That is what is supposed to sustain and strengthen us in our journey, in our pilgrimage as God's people. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, 
We all with unveiled faces are reflecting the glory of the Lord and are, be, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 18, he goes on, we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, if we will capture a glimpse of the eternal city, of God's kingdom, even though we don't see its full completion and full manifestation now, that will spur us on and strengthen us to get out of bed every morning and go and teach those children what it means to live life in terms of the Christ of Scripture and in terms of His kingdom in every area of life and every aspect of life. Because what is unseen now is eternal. It is more real than the Canadian Confederation or the Charter of Rights. The Psalms are full of this vision. Psalm 11, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright will see his face. Psalm 16, you reveal the path of life to me, in your presence is abundant joy, in your right hand are eternal pleasures. Psalm 21, you give him blessings forever, you cheer him with joy in your presence. What is the ultimate business then? What is the ultimate work? What is the ultimate labor of the kingdom of God, of the city of God? You know, the purpose of heaven when I was a child confused me a little bit. My image of it was a little bit like sort of top of the pops. Uh, do you remember that British show or uh, where they have all that dry ice coming up from the ground? You know, people are sort of immersed in smoke and uh, this kind of light and glory and mystery and so forth. And, and I used to think as well that... Um, I really wanted Christ to come while I was still a child because heaven would obviously be nowhere near as enjoyable as an adult, being sort of boring and dull, whereas as a child I'd still want to run around with lions and, you know, and so forth and play Superman. And then I also used to think, won't we get bored with all the songs? You know, an eternity singing, especially some modern choruses, as we touched on yesterday. Um, imagine how dull and boring that would be and uninspiring to sing the same old things. But you see, that's a childish view of the kingdom of God. Scripture indicates several related perfections in heaven that begin here and now. The first is this vision and contemplation of God. Then there is transformation, and then there is dominion or rule or regency under God. I read it to you at the beginning. John tells us, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. That's transformation because we will see him as he is. That's vision and contemplation. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. That is now dominion. First, the vision of God in the face of Christ involves this intellectual fulfillment and understanding. Second, transformation will be like him, his moral reflection in us, without which there is no joy or happiness. Here, happiness and holiness are totally interrelated in the kingdom of God, in human life. Sin always leads to misery. Holiness always leads to joy. That's the way God has made things. And thirdly, dominion, whoever has this hope, purifies himself. In other words, rules him, himself or herself, governs himself or herself. Scripture says it's better to rule yourself than to govern a city. If we can't rule ourselves and govern ourselves, that's why life is an apprenticeship in that sense for the task which God has for us in his kingdom which involves governorship, according to Scripture. Regency, dominion. To govern oneself is better than to rule a city. These perfections are all then interrelated, praising 
serving where intellect and love are all fulfilled through the community of the Trinity and the community of believers. All of eternity increasing and growing in these perfections according to our God-ordained potential. And that's what education is all about, isn't it? The education never ends. A vocation that you have is an eternal vocation. We're always learning, always growing for all eternity, ever increasing in this God-ordained potential. And what a glorious vision it is. The Job, the suffering servant of the Old Testament, tells us, in my flesh I will see God. This fusion here of understanding and love, surpassing them both, in my flesh, in my physicality, I will see God. Let me tell you what Augustine writes as he tries to get a handle on this fact. I quote, but faith gives way to sight. Listen very carefully to this. Faith gives way to sight, which we shall see, and hope gives way to bliss itself, which we are going to arrive at. While charity or love will actually grow when these, two, when these other two fade out. After all, if we love by believing what we cannot yet see, how much more will we do so when we have begun to see it? And if we love by hoping for it, what, have, what we have not yet attained to, how much more when we have attained to it? This indeed is the difference between temporal and eternal things. That something temporal is loved more before it is possessed but loses its appeal when it comes along. This is because it cannot satisfy the soul whose true and certain abode is eternity. But anything eternal is loved more fervently when acquired than when it is just desired. This is because while you are desiring it, you cannot think better of it than it really is, so that it disappoints when you find it does not come up to your expectations. On the contrary, however great your estimate of it while you are on your way to it, you find it exceeded when you actually attain it. You know that whole feeling of thinking, well, this car or this new outfit or this relationship or this job, this will deliver the satisfaction, so forth, that I've been looking for, and it's always way overestimated. And the car is boring before the oil needs a change, and ladies, the outfit is boring and dull before it's even been worn on some occasions, just sitting there in the wardrobe. Isn't it true that sometimes this is a reality of our temporal experience, our sense of dissatisfaction. That's why Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. But the eternal things, the eternal things of God cannot be thought better than they actually are. So they cannot possibly disappoint. We're not looking forward to an eternal kingdom where we all just retire, retire and play tiddlywinks in heaven, where there will be great enjoyment, of course, but in heaven... There will be things to occupy us as people. The work, of course, will be without its toil and tears and labor pains, as it were. But there will be things that God has given us to do because unity and diversity has been necessary in the human community now and it will always be necessary into eternity. Now, one of the things that humanism says to us, and unfortunately modern education says to us, is equalitarianism. It's humanistic. It says that it's it's the same to be a man or a woman, a girl or a boy. That it's just as good to have a single parent or a gay couple bringing up children. That even in our educational processes, we, don't, we try and eliminate, to a certain degree, competition. We try and equalize everything and make everybody a winner at everything so that nobody feels 
left out. Can I suggest to you that that is humanistic? Everybody is different. Everybody in this room has been created unique, different, with different types of potential in different areas of life. And the goal of education is to bring every child to their God-ordained potential, not to hold others back in certain areas or try and have unrealistic expectation of a certain child in another area. You see, heaven is not a place where you and I will all have exactly the same gifts, all exactly the same capacities. Why? Because then we won't need each other. If we're not different, we don't need each other. You see, when I had an addition built on my house, I wasn't stupid enough to try and build it myself. Why? Because I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Okay, I can put up a shelf and, you know, do a bit of general DIY around the house and paint and do the things that are necessary, but I'm not going to take on a job like that because I haven't given time and attention to it. I hired a friend of mine. He's a brilliant carpenter. And I suspected in a... 10 years of effort, I couldn't be as good a carpenter as he is. It's his gift. I don't have a beautiful mind like Russell (laughs) Crowe. I don't understand those equations. It doesn't matter how long I stare at them. But I do have some gifts of my own. Well, actually, God's gifts. God gives them to us so that he can fulfill his purposes in and through us. And we will still need each other in heaven because that's what community is. Unity in diversity. The Trinity is the paradigm of unity in diversity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and interdependence of relationship. That's what the church is. Doesn't Paul say we're all members of one body? You know, the hand doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you. And what it means to find fulfillment in the kingdom of God is to know that we are fulfilling what God has created us and made us for, and reaching our ordained potential in community and in relationship, a relationship of interdependence. So if my mansion needs some adjustment, I'll still call my mate Aaron in heaven, in the kingdom of God, because that's the joy of relationship. Isn't that the nature of marriage? I mean, if we were both identical in marriage, would it not be somewhat boring? And isn't that one of the essence of the problems with a homoerotic worldview, is that it eliminates all differences. But there are differences, and the differences are God-ordained differences. Equalitarian humanism is today ripping apart the fabric of our society because we don't see ourselves as members of one another, interdependent on one another in community. But we increasingly want to live isolated. I don't need anybody or anything, and the world revolves around me, and it will service my needs as a consumer. And if I want a child, maybe I'll just head down to the sperm bank and so on and so forth. All of the things that are happening in our culture today. Hell is a place, you see, of perfect disharmony. It's the, it's the paradigmatic opposite of the kingdom of God. It is where isolation, disharmony, where one has made oneself your own God In total isolation, what was the sin of our first parents? What was the temptation to our first parents? You will be as gods, knowing good from evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood, determining for yourself these things without reference to God. And hell is that place of isolation from community. It is a place of utter disharmony where there cannot be community. It is the opposite of the communion feast. The church is meant to be something altogether different. Let me conclude with this. With tremendous pathos and, I think, imagination, with a great deal of significance, Tolkien 
a wonderful Christian Oxford Don, who was so instrumental in seeing C.S. Lewis come to faith in Christ, wrote that marvelous book, The Lord of the Rings. And he puts into the words, he puts uh, words into the mouth of the white wizard, that prophet figure Gandalf, in his concerning the journey beyond this life. You remember there's a scene in the film, actually, at Minas Tirith, where uh, the hobbit and Gandalf are in the last section of the city uh, that has yet to be breached. And he fears that he is, uh, the hobbit's afraid to die. He's fearing death. He fears the end is near. And Gandalf, at the siege of the city, says to him, The end? The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What do you see? The hobbit asks. White shores and beyond the far green country and to a swift sunrise. What sort of a city and kingdom are we inheriting and how are we to respond now, today? What is our expectation of the future? What kind of a kingdom and city do you envisage? Do you recognize yourself today as a Christian and as a teacher to be instrumental in bringing about and establishing the kingdom of God. Here's what the scripture says. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is in the now. To my raids of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. That, the writer of Hebrews says, is our living reality here and now, the great cloud of witnesses. What kind of people should we be then in this fight, in this conflict, this course marked out for us, longing for the consummation of the kingdom. The writer of Hebrews goes on, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So now, the apostle John says, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I don't know about you, but when I think about Christ and the myriads of angels and the firstborn whose names are written in heaven and the just fathers and the saints of old that I spend so much of my time reading about and reading their work and the great cloud of witnesses, I know that I want to be bold and unashamed on that day of the consummation and fulfillment and victory of God's kingdom because I fought the fight and remained in Him. And I believe the same is true of every Christian. You don't want to be ashamed. You want to be bold on the day of His coming in the face of all of the saints of old and all that they have accomplished. In Tolkien's Christian myth, this human king you'll remember called Theoden of Rohan, has had his mind held captive by the evil one, and there's this tremendous uh, deliverance of his mind when Gandalf the White now goes and releases him from his bondage. And he goes then into a series of battles, a series of fights for the deliverance of the realm of Gondor. And as in that final battle there, at the outside the city of Gondor, he is almost slain 
and he is thrown down under his horse, and on the battlefield he utters his last words to his niece, who uh, kneels over him. And this is what he says, I go to my father's, in whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed. Those words really spoke to me. I go now to my fathers in whose mighty company I need not now feel ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed when the saints and martyrs of the golden city, the white city, the new Jerusalem, and nor do you. So let us keep the faith and lay down our lives as teachers for the kingdom of God, for the city of God, because we are God's children now, says John, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And what an education that will be. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.